You are listening to Insights, produced by the University of New South Wales Law Society, a podcast dedicated to bring you an insight into law school, the legal profession, and legal issues. The production team would also like to show our respects and acknowledge the Bedigal people, who are the traditional custodians of the land, of elders past and present on which this podcast is made. Thank you to Clifford Chance for sponsoring this episode. Clifford Chance currently offers a winter clerkship program which allows clerks to experience a busy and exciting time at the office. To accommodate for the UNSW trimester program, they have created a special two-week program, which in 2021 runs from Monday 30th of August to Friday 10th of September. Over the course of this clerkship, clerks will experience life at Clifford Chance through two different teams of real-life matters and communicating with a variety of departments across the firm. Class will automatically be considered for a position within their 2023 graduate program and applications close on the 14th of May. For our fifth episode here on the podcast, we have invited Mark Carell from Clifford Chance. He is currently a corporate practitioner with extensive expertise in private equity and M&A. His major areas of focus include advising private market firms and multinational businesses. Notably, Mark has advised Macquarie Capital in connection with its acquisition of a 50% stake in environmental monitoring solutions. A huge welcome and thank you to Mark for joining us today. Thank you, Harry. Um, Just as a bit of an icebreaker, I just wanted to ask you, if you were any type of coffee, what would you be? Oh, that's an interesting one. Um, I would probably, I don't know, I'd be a flat white, probably a mix of the strong coffee and the... uh, the mellow milk, I don't yeah. know, a, a blend. A bit of a multi-faceted individual, would you say? Um, I'm not sure I'm particularly complex, but I'd like yeah. to think I'm not also uh, just... Uh, Either milk or uh, coffee. Milk or coffee, indeed. Outside of being a lawyer, what do you do in your spare time? Um, I like to get outdoors, primarily. I've got also got a family, so I spend quite a bit of time with them. But if I'm not at work and I'm not with my family, I, I like um, surfing, um, running, swimming anything but really just being outdoors. How do you manage all that sport and especially with a really busy desk job? Yeah, I think it's um, everybody lives busy lives these days. It's about um, planning and putting time around to um, uh, your time for work and the time for your family and then a little bit of time for yourself as well. Obviously the, the jobs we have is you can't necessarily predict when the job will need you. And so, but we live, um, and we have flexible working now, and you just need to um, make sure you do maintain space to invest with your your family and your friends, and quite importantly, spend time also doing what you want for yourself as well. Because if you don't do that, that can have an adverse impact on your professional career. Taking time for yourself is a really important thing. It is, and I think both organisations and individuals in organisations have got better at that and have actually learnt that. And, and COVID, is, in some respects, and the, our experience in COVID has accelerated that learning. Um, and there's much more comfort now with flexible working. There's much more comfort that people will take responsibility uh, for their jobs and do their jobs just as well, whether they're in the office or remote. And the reality is from a f- professional business perspective now, it's it's um, we have both people in the office, we have people at home, and most people mix between the two. And that does 
make it easier, I think, to get that balance in terms of investing time in your in, in your job, in your in your family, friends, and yourself. So something about you probably is very noticeable is the accent. Mm-hmm. Um, I just wanted to ask, uh, do you mind telling us a bit about where you come from and also how you ended up working for Clifford Chance in Sydney? Sure. Um, I uh, was born and grew up in rural England, um, about two hours north of London in, in the country area. Um, I uh, went to university in England, but I always had a desire to travel and see the world. And one of the reasons I chose law was because it was a career that really would allow me to travel the world. And, and in the first 10 years of my career, that's largely what I did. I worked, um, uh, started in London, I worked in, in Germany, um, in, in Frankfurt, and I came and worked in Australia. And then I had a series of jobs which took me um, all over the world. Um, uh, I returned, that was, sorry, let me say that again. <laughs> I um, had a series of jobs that took me all over the world where I, I, I left big law and worked in-house for a couple of big corporates. And that allowed me to really fulfil that amb- ambition of travelling the world. Um, I came back to Australia in 2009 and, and settled back into um, big law firms and have been here here since then. So you've worked in multiple jurisdictions. Was there any like barriers in terms of working outside your home jurisdiction, I guess? Um, no, again, in some ways, that's the beauty of law in that if you're qualified in England or Australia or any Hong Kong, any common law jurisdiction, it's, it's very easy to go to another common law jurisdiction and in some ways hit the ground running because there's a great commonality of the, of the law and practice um, and then get the local qualification. And so, uh, and that's a well-trodden trodden path. I've also worked in civil law jurisdictions. I've done a lot in Portugal and Italy and France, for example where it's not, obviously it's very different, there's, there's a, um, a language differential, there's a significant legal differential, but um, the reality is English law is a major export product. So even if you work in those jurisdictions and you're qualified in English law, then very often there is work that's relevant to, to what you do. Um, and that's why you see a lot of Australian lawyers, for example, can go to New York, they can go to um, London, they, they, they can go to Hong Kong very easily. Here at Clifford Chance, though, we, we send people very often to, we had a lot of people go to Paris, we're having somebody about to go to Italy. It is possible to move with a common law um, type qualification and still go and work in a civil law jurisdiction. Why mm-hmm. made you decide to settle in Australia out of all countries? I just felt very comfortable here. It, it allowed me, I think, in essence, it allowed me to combine doing my job, which I've always quite enjoyed, with that outdoor life. Um, now, Britain and England is a great place, but the weather isn't particularly conducive to outdoor life. The other, the other great thing of doing law in Sydney is you can do this job without having a particularly long commute. Um, uh, whereas in, in, in London, the commute can be very significant. And for me, I've realised very early on that wasn't something I could do for a 10, 20, 30 year period. Um, so Australia and Sydney in particular offered me the balance in my life of being allowed to do my job at the, at the top of my career with, a, with leading firms, but also have that balance in my life as well. I would like to politely disagree with the fact that Sydney still has incredibly bad commute times. Yeah. I had to, uh, it took me, I think, an hour and a half to get to Sydney this morning. Mm-hmm. Um, what actually made you decide to study law in the end, other than the fact of traveling and being no. able to travel around? I think like many people, I, I fell into it in that I had r- good grades at school. And then you, and, and you therefore look at what your 
grades can take you into in terms of tertiary education. And in my case, I didn't knew, I definitely I wasn't cut out to be for medicine. That wasn't for me. And I was looking at law or economics. And I got a bit of guidance. Um, and off, the back, off that guidance, I chose to do law. And it really does, it sets you down a path. It's one of those moments in life that's a real junction point. Um, I then studied uh, law uh, at, a, at a university in England. I quite enjoyed it. Um, the study of law is very different. In, in, in my, when I did my degree, it was very different to the practice of law. It was quite academic. It was really a mix of, sort of legal philosophy, social studies, um, politics even really built built in there and I really quite enjoyed that um, I then having completed my degree there's another decision point and it, it was it, having enjoyed my degree it was quite a natural thing to move on um, and seek out a legal career and at that point in time as I say I was really looking for a job that would take me potentially overseas quite quickly um, and l law was a very obvious way to do that rather like Clifford Chance here now in Sydney the big firms in London it was compulsory that as part of your training you would go overseas and so uh, that was very attractive to me and then um, rather like here again as, as well once you've done your law degree there's a you, you do more your practical vocational training as a postgrad over there so I did a one-year postgrad and then in your first two years um, working you do a lot of practical training as well so that was really the nature of my legal training. Do you mind um, explaining what exactly is private equity and mergers and acquisitions? Sure. Um, let me start at a, at a level above. So private equity and mergers and acquisitions are really subsets of what you would call corporate law. Um, and corporate law can mean lots of different things. What we're talking about here is um, either companies or more likely investors buying and selling or investing in businesses. Um, so that's what people talk about by mergers and acquisitions, really. That's um, really buying and selling businesses or interests in businesses. Private equity is a subset of that. Private equity um, is a um, type of business that buys and sells businesses as a profession. Their job, they normally have a fund of money which they take and their job, their, their job is to increase the value of that fund of money by buying businesses and then at a later point in time selling those businesses for more than they paid for them on the way in and therefore creating a profit for their investors. Um, so so well-known private equity companies are people like KKR or Carlyle or Blackstone, big global well-known private equity companies. Within Australia, there's a very vibrant private equity community which plays a role in buying, investing in and growing Australian businesses, but ultimately they'll sell those businesses. So most private equity funds will only look to own a business for between three to five years and then we'll sell that business. And the way they sell it is that you can list it on the stock exchange, um, you can sell it to another private equity fund, or you might sell it to a trade buyer. So that might be, uh, you might sell it to Bunnings or um, Qantas or someone like that, somebody, somebody within the sector that, that owns that business. But at its, at its core, M&A, um, mergers acquisitions, private equity is acting for clients who buy and sell or invest in businesses. So when people think about private equity and also mergers and acquisitions, what people normally think about is like investment banking and finance mm -hmm. people. What is more of the legal challenges that people face when going to a private equity sale or a mergers, merger? Sure. And those investment bankers uh, are people that we work with yeah. on these transactions. They're part of the community. Our key role probably falls into um, three, three parts. We're really 
there for the duration of a transaction. There'll be a transaction that underlies um, uh, the activity that we're involved in. Um, and as part of that transaction, the obvious thing is we provide the legal advice and make sure that the transaction is legally sound and, com and compliant with law. Um, the second thing we will do is we will draft and negotiate the transaction documents for um, a transaction. So if, and that can be very significant. Um, it, so if you look at if you're acting a private equity company buying a business, um, our role on the transaction documents, there'll be, a, there'll be an agreement under which, which documents the acquisition of that business. Um, but the piece of that contract dealing with the transfer of the shares or the assets is half a page. Those documents are normally go to, can go to hundreds of pages because there's lots of other commercial items or legal items to be dealt with, um, such as allocation of liability um, or any conditionality uh, around, around the contract. Um, the... Uh, then, then the other piece of work we do is just generally around the broader pro project and the project management. What quite often happens on these transactions is you'll have the, the, the fund and the investment banker, they will have originated the deal. They will have gone and got the deal, priced the deal. They've done the financial analysis that underpins why it's a good deal and why it works. But when it comes to the implementation of the deal, that largely gets handed over to the law firm. So we're largely driving the implementation of the project. There's a lot of project management of people, documentation and process and bringing all that together. And that's why we end up with quite large teams because we have a lot of stakeholders to interact with and there's a, and there's a large organisational piece. Um, and depending on the nature of the transaction, there's, there's often you have lots of ancillary tasks gets thrown off um, in a transaction. So, for example, we do a lot of due diligence activity, which is really an investigation of the business from a legal or contractual standpoint that can require a, a considerable amount of work. There's often regulatory matters, you know, but you, you'll have seen um, foreign investment is a highly regulated area in Australia. The vast majority of our deals are cross-border, and so we do a lot of foreign investment work as well. So all the transactions are different. That's one of the things that keeps it interesting. Um, that, but there's a number of common themes that, that run through them in terms of the work we do. Mm -hmm. um, what is probably the most complex or most interesting deal that you've had to work with recently? Um, that's a good question. I'll, I'll talk about, there was one um, a private equity fund which was the acquisition of a, it's a consumer insurance business. And so the product itself, you look at that and think maybe that's not particularly um, exciting, if you like. But it's complex because you're in a regulated space. Anything that, do is, that deals with financial services is difficult, is highly regulated. There's a lot of legal risk in terms of what you're buying. Um, what made that particularly interesting is that the buyer of our client was a large um, private equity fund. Um, they were actually buying two businesses which were essentially what had started out as almost family businesses that over 25 years had grown into very, very significant, substantial businesses. Um, and which, which means that there's a certain nature of those businesses, which means you're dealing with very interesting people. Um, and that's always an interesting dynamic if you're buying a family business because those people really deeply care about the business that they're selling. And so while they're looking for a good financial deal, they're also looking to transition their business that they've built. It's been their life's work into hands that they trust. And so that's always an interesting dynamic to observe uh, and is then very different than if you're just dealing with, say, a transaction from, from fund to fund. Um, that transaction also involved, in terms of the way it was paid for, um, 
it was paid for in a, the, the, the consideration, as we call it, was structured in a very complex manner that involved um, quite some quite complicated debt financing into the transaction. So another one's where it's from our perspective, it involved both our corporate M&A expertise and our finance group expertise and building the two together and ultimately delivering the transaction for the client to the point where we had taken responsibility really for delivery, of delivering something that was very complex, um, really important outcome to the client that it got done, but within a certain timetable. Time and so that was quite a challenging transaction. Is it often the case that you have to deal with very personal matters, such as in this case where it is their personal and also family-owned business? Is that A key thing in the work we do is we deal with people and we deal with individuals. And often we deal with people who either buy, they might be selling a business in which they have a very significant financial and sometimes emotional stake, and with people buying businesses where they're spending a lot of money. So often we're dealing with our clients, we're dealing with them at some of the most stressful moments of their entire life. Now we deal with this, we do these deals every single day. So we see this every day um, and therefore we become quite good at that. And so that's one of the challenges of the job is often just managing the individuals and understanding what the inputs are to them and what's driving their thinking or their behavior. And ultimately then taking that and driving an outcome that works for our client um, and ultimately for, for everybody um, and so the the personal or the individual part of the deal is absolutely critical um, as part of that the reason our clients come to us is again it's it's personal it's personal relationship people work with people who they trust they rate their work but also people they think they can work with generally there has to be some a relationship they I, I look at who my clients are they're people who they might not be my best friends but they're they're, they're friends they're people who with whom I have a very positive relationship. I know quite a lot about them. Um, I know they know how to get the best out of me and vice versa. And that's really the way M&A works. It's a, it's a very interpersonal um, type business in terms of you're trying to achieve a goal that can be quite complex um, to do both from a technical perspective, but also dealing with a number of people. So the interpersonal um, skill in, in the role of an M&A lawyer, I think is one that people don't really talk about, but is pretty key. And it's, a, and it's an area where when people join our team junior and they come through, it's when area you see people really improve um, and develop that skill, the more experienced they, they become. What would you say specifically are those types of interpersonal skills that you would need to be successful to be an M&A lawyer? You need to be able to listen and identify what people's drivers are and understand what their true concerns are. Because often what people say isn't quite what they mean or isn't quite what they're thinking and so you need to use the power of questions to really drill in and filter out um, a what people want if they're a client or if there's a problem filter down and understand what the real problem is because quite often if you if you jump to a conclusion from something somebody tells you you'll go and think you've fixed a problem and when you go with the solution they'll say oh no that's not what i meant i actually meant this um, and, th and on the other hand at times it's a matter of just you understand it's showing humility and understanding in humanity if you like and just un understanding quite often we see people in a very stressed state and and you need to your job is to moderate that ultimately everyone's trying to achieve an end goal so if things become emotional or tense often the best thing we can do is take the tension and the emotion out of that and in an understanding way uh, and try to keep people focused um, on, on the end goal but but ultimately you need to be able to observe 
what's going on around you and move things in a positive direction. And that comes with experience, if you like. I think one of the things, the interesting things of the job that I know my, my family remark on is that I become, because they're, they're sometimes going to hear, if I'm on conference calls at home, they can hear what's going on. And you become, hardened is the wrong word, you become very used to um, there being dispute around you, people being being tense. Um, and you just realise it's just it's just a way of being. Um, and so part of our job is just to help people in those situations. A lot of what we're really doing in our job is helping people. And we're helping them achieve an outcome. And if there is there's tension and emotion in, in getting to that, which there inevitably will be, um, that's just part and parcel of our job to manage that and and create move move deal with that in a way in a constructive way that moves everything keeps things moving forward there are other more i guess conflict-based practice groups such mm-hmm. as litigation and stuff like that yeah do you deal with a lot of disputes and conflict within your practice group as well um we try not to we try to avoid them as best we can there are deals that um transactions that once they've closed and completed um disputes can arise and then we involve our disputes team whose job is dealing with genuine disputes um in our work the in, in order to when we're looking to um execute on a um a transaction a sale or a purchase for somebody there's disagreements along the way but that, but there's a distinction there between a, dis, a dispute that ends up with with our litigators and so um i have in in my career the transactions i've done i've done hundreds if not thousands of transactions um i've had two that have ended up in really serious disputes after the after the fact and then those so those things move into the disputes team and they do their job because they deal with people in genuine dispute and whether that ends up in being settled or it can end up in arbitration or it could end up in the courts but that's a very different skill set and uh, i i let them stick to their speciality and I also think that's pretty much a, a hallmark of a good M&A lawyer if you're mm-hmm. both your clients and also the um, the other side is also happy as well with yeah. the deal. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is a magic circle firm. Um, what is the kind of Sydney's relationship um, with Clifford Chance in England? I look, I look at that slightly differently in that Clifford Chance is an incredibly integrated network. Um, and so we have relationships with all of the officers. And in some respects... Um, the offices is almost an artificial distinction because we work across global clients where, and we do that out of different offices, but we're often working on the same transactions and we're dealing with the same relationships. And so the office distinction becomes largely merged. Um, we are dealing with people in other Clifford Chance offices all the time. For example, it's probably, what, 10.30 in the moment. I've spoken to two people in Clifford Chance London today already and two people in Clifford Chance Hong Kong today already and I'll speak to other people as the day goes on. We're dealing with global clients and so, and we, we service them in, in, a, in a fairly seamless way um, across the network. So we are uh, we don't really see ourselves necessarily as a network of separate offices. There, there's just places which people have a, have a home office where they go to. So in particular, in, in Asia, um, and we, lo- we operate... Um, particularly in corporate and in finance. We operate Hong Kong, Singapore, Australia, almost as a merged business. And the best example of that I can give you is, so I've spent most, now post-COVID, all my time, but um, I used to do a lot more travel. 
but sitting and operating out of Sydney in the last two years, I've worked on transactions for businesses in India, Vietnam, Malaysia, um, Thailand, um, and do a lot of work with China as well. Um, and so in some respects in Clever Chance, where you live is slightly secondary um, quite often to the kind of work you'll be doing. And, and it, what that means is it's highly collaborative and the relationship is seamless. I don't talk to somebody at Clever Chance think, oh, you're based in London or New York or whatever. Um, you're talking to just another person in, in the Clifford Chance network. It's very joined up. That's awesome. And does that mean it's a lot more flexible as well if you do want to go to another office around Absol- the world? Absolutely. The way um, uh, we see it, particularly in Sydney, is we take people, some people come here out of the network, but we're always going to be a net feeder into the network because the off- other offices are much bigger than ours. Um, and so we are, are pushing people all the time. People come through um, with us, they'll go off into the network, and we hope they come back. They may not. It's, uh, Clifford Chance throws up a lot of opportunities, and who knows, people have their careers. But um, if you take COVID out of the way, because there's obviously been a pause around that, but it's starting to happen again now, we um, have had people come work for us. Either they come in as um, grads and they do the, the training program and then spend some time and move on, We've had people come in more senior and spend some time and go. But in the three years I've been here, we've had people go to New York. We've had lots of people go to London. We're about to have somebody go to Italy. We've had some people go to France. We've had someone go to Dubai. And there's lots of people go to Hong Kong, Singapore, China. Um, and essentially, if, if that's something you want to do, and we welcome people who do want to do it, then we very much encourage that. Because the idea of Clever Chance is that um, it's, a, it's a group of enthusiastic, intelligent, capable people um, and uh, where there's great opportunity. And, and we, we really encourage people coming in and um, we want people who want to come and work internationally. That's, that's pretty key for us. I've always been really interested in an international career as well, mm-hmm. um, but something that I've always thought about because I'm interested in going to Hong Kong, mm-hmm. Shanghai, stuff like that. Just as a last question, what is your favourite thing about Clifford Chance? Um, I have two, can I say, I've got two favourite things about Clifford Chance. Um, the first is the opportunities it creates for no matter who you are in the organisation. And that's a result of two things. One is Clifford Chance is a truly global law firm. Um, when you look at it, there aren't actually that many truly global law firms. There's lots of firms with pins in a map, but there aren't many that are genuinely in that, those locations doing top level work in those locations in a way that's joined up um, and with an international client base that covers from you know, North America all the way across into um, across Europe into Southeast Asia. And what that means is Clever Chance creates this amazing opportunities for no matter who you are, whether you're, in the, whether you're a lawyer or you work what we call business services, which are the services that support the legal group. Um, if you have the right attitude and mindset and some ambition, um, and energy, then this is a place to really grow in terms of your skill base, your knowledge, um, your professional network. Um, and that's something I've really noticed since I've been here. Um, and, it, and it just really does open up and make your professional life more interesting and also where you might go in your professional life. And the second thing is the culture. Now, everybody talks about culture, but it's when I came into Clifford Chance, it's one of the things I really noticed about Clifford Chance. It, it guards its culture extremely tightly, um, and that's, that is for good reason, because it has this highly 
um, positive, inclusive, um, productive culture. And it's hard to put your finger on why, but the closest I've got to put my finger on why is because it's full of really good people. And the personal attributes that those people have is that ultimately they commit, they're quite ambitious, they're highly intelligent, but ultimately they're quite caring and they're good people. They have a good, basically they've got a good ethical moral basis. And that plays out in the way the firm operates. It's highly inclusive. Um, it's, it's a force for good. Um, and it doesn't tolerate bad behaviour within, within the business. Um, and so one of the things I really notice is I observe things in the press which I suspect is really virtue signalling going on from other organisations. There's none of that here. We actually, and I've, I've, you see this uh, day to day, that bad behaviour isn't, isn't tolerated. Um, and, the, and the firm is always trying to improve. It's never just rest back and says, we are the finished product. But if you look at the work that goes on, um, around inclusion, around gender parity, LGBTQ type inclusion, and the whole general uh, diversity inclusion initiatives and other initiatives in the firm. What they're really aimed at is making sure, make, trying to make sure that no matter who you are, when you come here, you feel like you belong, and also the firm will give you opportunity. And I think that's that's really positive. Uh, thank you so much again for joining us. Thank Thanks you so much, Mark. My pleasure. Thank you. Um, if you enjoyed this episode of Insights by UNSW Law Society, uh, please subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss any 